Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So it was my senior year. Uh, I was the captain of our soccer team. Soccer was my sport from kindergarten all the way on. I played football one year, absolutely hated it. I was on the line and I didn't like the fact that the only thing I had to think about was do I go left or do I go right? So I was used to soccer, enjoyed soccer. And on this particular day, as we were beginning our practice and we were doing our warmups, we had this, we had this warmup where uh, we would stand in a circle together. I don't know if you soccer players did this. You stand in a circle, you have two guys in the middle and one guy has the ball and he can use anyone on the outside of the circle to basically keep it away from the other person, right? It's, just, it's basically this, this big game of keep away. Well, on this day, it was me and my friend, uh, and he, we, he, he and I had been friends since middle school. He, uh, he was a bigger guy, he was bigger than me, probably like 80 pounds bigger, and so he was like my opponent in this warm-up drill, and so we start the drill, and things are going fine, and then all of a sudden, he is going for the ball, but then he misses the ball and lands on my foot. 80 pounds heavier, he's a big dude, big, stocky Iowa boy, has only eaten corn his whole life. Like, he's a big guy with cleats on, and he stepped on my foot. It's like catastrophic, right? I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm in agony because this hurts so bad, and I'm so angry at him. I'm, I'm so filled with rage that in the milliseconds that it took for me to like turn around and face him, I decided in that moment in my head, I'm going to call him the first name that comes to my mind. Like, I'm just gonna let him have it. And so as I turn around in front of the whole team, I look at him, I get right in his face, and I go, you pervert. It was my moment. I ruined it. He steps on my foot. Now he's a pervert. Great. He stepped on my foot. I stepped on my own ego, right? Have you ever gotten so angry that you, you were surprised at your own response? And maybe you made yourself look like a fool. Well, obviously, as those words came out of my mouth, like it diffused the whole situation. You know, everyone's just looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Like, what are you talking about? But I think sometimes it's easy for us to see anger as kind of like a respectable sin. Like it's, it's probably unlikely that as you've stepped into a connection group, that maybe something that's confessed very often is the sin of anger. We even talk about anger in interesting ways, don't we? We say things like, I lost my temper. I had it, and I lost it. I don't know where it went. It ran away. Where did my temper go? I lost it. Or we say things like, I'm just venting. I just need to vent. Like, you don't want me to keep all these emotions, you know, bottled up inside. Isn't that emotionally unhealthy? I just, need to, I just need to blow off steam, right? Or we say things like, like they made me so angry. Or we'll look at our kids and say, stop pushing my buttons. Where did we get these buttons? But like we have all these buttons. Like I don't know where these buttons came from, but you're pushing them. Every time you have a, another kid, you get another button. They push them because they know exactly where they are. The anger buttons. You see, the way that we talk about anger 
is often as though it's something that happens to us, but not something that is done by us. Like somehow we are like victims of anger. Like it's outside of us and it just kind of like comes upon us. And maybe that's part of the reason why it's easy for us to not really take it all that seriously as an as a actual sin. Well, this, this is kind of the way that we may think of anger, but the question isn't, what do you think of your anger? The question is, what does Jesus have to say about anger? So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter five. We're jumping into verse 21 through 26. We're in the Sermon on the Mount here in the spring, and we saw as we walked through uh, verses one through 12, we saw in the Beatitudes that we get the, the character of kingdom people and the conduct of kingdom people. And then after that, as Cody opened the scriptures with us, we saw like the purpose of the kingdom life, and that is to be salt and light. And then last week, as Matt Dennings from Anthem brought to us, he, he showed us how Jesus was relating himself to the teaching of the law of God. Because remember, this audience would have been Jews, and they would have known the law of God. And so they would have interpreted every new teaching that they would encounter according to the law of God. And what Jesus does is he makes it abundantly clear in verse 17 that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he ends our passage from last week in verse 20 by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So that's verse 20. Now, basically from this point, from verse 20, all the way through the rest of the Sermon of the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, is an explanation of what verse 20 means. What does it mean that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Jesus is going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount explaining exactly what that means. And we, we begin to see the answer to that question as he moves into verses 21 and 22. Check this out, these, these first two verses. Here's what he says, You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Now notice a couple things. First off, Jesus starts off with, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, now, it's really, really important that he didn't say, it is written, but I say to you. Or you have read, but I say to you. No, he doesn't say that. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Which means that Jesus is not correcting the law and he's not challenging the law. What he's doing is he is challenging their interpretation of the law. Or to put it a better way, he's challenging their misinterpretation of the law. Because do not murder was in the law. You see that in Exodus 20, as you get to the 10 commandments, do not murder is explicitly there. And this, this following phrase here in verse 20 and 21, that whoever murders will be subject to judgment, that was also in Numbers chapter 35. 
So do not murder, Exodus 20. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment, Numbers 35. But what they had done in squishing these two commands together was that they created an interpretation of the law that reduced the impact of the law, that reduced the full meaning of what the law was actually saying and turned it into basically a command that says, well, if you don't, if you don't murder someone physically, then you're fine. But that's all that the law meant that that's all that murder is, is it's just a matter of like the physical act of your hands. You see, Jesus starts explaining how your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees by saying that righteousness for the scribes and Pharisees was simply a matter of what they did with their hands. That's their righteousness. But what Jesus is going to highlight is that righteousness for kingdom people isn't simply a matter of what you do with your hands, but it's also a matter of what's going on in your heart. It isn't just about your hands. It's also about your heart. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 20. And in this way, this is, it's, not just a, it's not just a righteousness that comes from Christ and in that way exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, though that is certainly true, that the righteousness we receive from Christ is greater than their righteousness, but it's also a righteousness that is more than just skin deep. It's that kingdom people now possess a righteousness that doesn't just affect what they do, but also affects how they think and how they feel. It's a righteousness that moves beyond external action and, t- and touches and transform, transforms our internal attitudes. This may be what some of you think coming in to this room this morning. You may think that Christianity is, is simply a matter of behavior modification. But the whole point of Christianity is to, is to help you be a better person, to help you have better actions, to, get, to help you like clean up your life. Like it's behavior modification. It's, it's to turn you into a nice person. Or some of you might think that in order to be able to become a Christian, you have to clean your life up. Like you have to like stop doing these certain things. And I, well, I, I can't accept Jesus until I kind of get my life cleaned up, until I kind of like, like I work on these habits that have, that have plagued me for years. And so I'm gonna deal with this and then come to Christianity because what Christianity is, is that it's all about what you do with your hands. It's all about your actions. This might be why some of you get excited maybe about Candeo Kids or Candeo Youth because you might see those contexts or even Salt Company, you might see those contexts as these kind of like, uh, like morality factories, right? Where you, you, bring, you bring them in and you put them, you put them in there and then what is supposed to come out the other end are nice kids, moral kids, kids that are kind, kids that have a good group of people around them, you know? And maybe, maybe you'll get upset with Candeo kids or Candeo youth because they come on a Wednesday night. I put them in there on a Sunday morning. They go on a Thursday night. Now, why aren't they better people? We can't fix them. Why do they still act so terrible? But don't you see here that Jesus is saying that unless your religion is more than skin deep, 
is more than purely a matter of not doing the wrong things and doing the right things. Unless your religion moves beyond the acts of your hands and begins to touch the internal attitudes of your heart, your righteousness is no better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look back at verse 21 and 22. You have heard it said that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Check this out. Notice that we see multiple times throughout this whole passage, Jesus refers over and over again to brothers and sisters. We see this in verse 22. If you're angry, angry with his brother or sister, insults his brother or sister. Verse 23, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Verse 24, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Isn't it interesting that the only relationships that we have in this world that are given to us and not chosen by us is our family? Like you didn't choose your parents. Quite frankly, they didn't choose you. You didn't choose your siblings. You didn't choose your weird uncle. You just got him. Like you, you, you can choose your friends. You can choose your lovers. You can choose your coworkers to an extent. In, in that sense, you can like choose where you work, right? If you really don't like your coworkers, then go work somewhere else. But you don't get to choose your family. They're just given to you. And they're probably people that if given the option, you would not have chosen. You would have chosen someone else. Different parents, different siblings, different aunts and uncles. You can't choose your family. You see, when, when our son Judah was born and we brought Naomi into the, into the delivery room and we put Judah in her lap, we were not presenting him to her as an option. Like, how about this one? <laughs> and what would she have done? She'd been like, no, no. Be like, oh, okay, sorry, we'll go. That, that's not what the nursery there is. It's not like a used car dealership, right? Or new cars, I guess, you know, babies. But it wasn't an option. Like, what do you think? Will he work? Like, no, your brothers and sisters are given to you automatically. And what Jesus has the audacity to say is that when you are adopted into God's family, when you are a person of the kingdom, that you are automatically given brothers and sisters, fellow believers, like people that you wouldn't naturally choose. People that are a little weird, who like things different than you who smell different than you, look different than you, think differently than you do. I mean, think of you with your siblings. How different are you? Probably very different. But when you are adopted into God's family, you are given a new spiritual family. You see, you cannot separate your relationship with the father from your relationship with his children. You can't do it. You can't separate your relationship with the Father from your relationship with his children. And what Jesus is saying is that though you may not kill someone with your hands, if you're angry with a brother or sister in your heart, then it's tantamount to murder in God's economy. Like you may be sitting in here and you're like, you're like I haven't killed anyone, but is there anyone in your life 
that it would be the delight of your heart to kill their reputation, to kill the way that people see them, that though you may never like put a knife to their throat, you slit the throat of their reputation before other people, that every time that their name comes up in conversation or on social media, that, it is, that it, it's like it is your desire that the way that you speak of them would cause other people to see them in a lower way, in not as good of a light. Now you see, Every moral law has a counterpart. This is really important for us to understand as we think about our own anger and we think about our anger in relation to murder. Every moral law has a counterpart. Here's what I mean. Don't steal is a moral law given in Scripture. Notice that somewhere else in scripture, there is a counterpart to it. So if you have don't steal, you also have be generous. So in other words, stealing isn't just whether or not you go up to someone and take from them what is theirs. That's not, that's not just what stealing means according to God. That's certainly, yes, that is stealing, but stealing is also a failure to do the positive action, a failure to be generous holding on to what you have, holding on to your resources, to, to your finances, to the things that you own, and refusing to share. God says that that is also stealing. So don't steal, be generous. Don't commit adultery, that's the negative. But what's the counterpart? Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Don't covet What's the counterpart to don't covet? Be thankful. Don't covet. Don't just be constantly looking around at what everyone else has and be desiring in your heart to have it. But instead, be thankful for what the Lord has given you. And do not murder has with it love your enemies. Love your fellow brothers and sisters as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the counterbalance to anger, which is murder in the heart, is love. So we could say it this way. How do you know? How do you know if you are loving people? Here's how you can know that you're not loving people. We don't love people when we see them as objects to consume or obstacles to remove. We don't love people when we see them as objects to consume or obstacles to remove. Now, now you might at this point, as we're talking about anger, you go, wait, 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 Jake, but didn't Jesus get angry? Like, is this just saying like all anger, like no anger is good? Like didn't Jesus Christ himself get angry. And yes, that's absolutely true. Most notably what we see in the New Testament is Jesus gets angry in Matthew chapter 12 when he obviously flips the tables over in the temple. Okay. He's angry there. We see Jesus get angry in Mark chapter three, where he's going to heal a man and, and everyone around him is getting on him about healing on the Sabbath. He gets angry about the hardness of their hearts with that. And then we see in John chapter 11, that Jesus is furious as he faces the tomb of his dead friend, Lazarus. So yes, absolutely. Jesus got 
angry. But Jesus's anger was always a righteous anger. And how, how do you know if, an, if anger is a righteous anger? Jesus's anger was a righteous anger because every time he was angry, his anger had to do with the fact that the will of his father was being offended or obstructed. This was not just because Jesus had some preferences that he just kind of like, well, I would just prefer that you wouldn't do that. And you're, you're just kind of like in my way. Like, no, he saw very directly that the will of his father was being obstructed or offended. That is a righteous anger. People being taken advantage of and placing barriers in front of them to worship. That's Matthew chapter 12, right? People who are more concerned about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law, and that they would actually want someone to be prevented from being healed. It's Mark chapter three. Anger at death itself. The enemy of God who is the giver of life. John chapter 11. Jesus' anger was a righteous anger because it was directly connected to his concern for God's will and God's glory. But is it not true that like 90% of the time that our anger, that our anger is not because it's connected to a concern for God's will or God's glory? Like maybe 95, 98% of the time that our anger is because we're seeing people as objects to consume or obstacles to remove. Now, why is it? How does this play out? Could, could this be the reason why you get so angry with your spouse? Because you're actually seeing your spouse as an object for your happiness. And so then you get angry, like your, my spouse exists to make me happy. If they don't make me happy, they're not doing what they're supposed to. Like, isn't that what they were designed to do? That's why they're there. They're an object for your happiness. And when they don't make you happy, you get angry. Why is it that you get so angry with your kids? Oh, man. Is it because you're seeing them? Maybe not as objects, though you could. Maybe you're seeing them as obstacles to your comfort. Like, I just want to come home. I just want to sit on the couch. It's been a long day at work. have a lot of stresses. I just want to come home and be comfortable. I just want to be left alone. Would you just leave me alone? Several guys for Father's Day, different conversations that I talked to. I said, is there anything, that, is there anything special you want to do for Father's Day? And they're like, I just want to be left alone. The greatest gift you could give a dad is to, be le- is to leave him alone, right? They just want to be left alone. I just want some peace and quiet. And you kids are anything but peaceful and quiet. Anything but. This was me this week. I was, <laughs> my kids, I was having a stressful day. We, we have a floor drain in our basement that just is God's greatest sanctifying work in my life. And, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's for years. Come on. Okay, so... I won't go into it, but anyways, I'm dealing with this floor drain. I'm just like, I'm tired. I'm like, this, this, is, this, is, my, this is my life. After I go, wake up, go to work, come home, spend time with the floor drain. That's what I do, you know? And so, and like I go upstairs and have dinner and, and my kids are just, 
They're just having fun. It's cold. Like, I'm not going to send them outside to freeze to death, you know? So they're having fun. They're laughing. Their laughter was annoying me. Their laughter. They weren't fighting. They weren't being disobedient. They were just being kids. They were being obstacles to my comfort. Or maybe you go, maybe you're like me, and it's like, I don't, I don't get angry at people as much. I get angry at things. Like, we, we, had this, we had this 03 Highlander that just would not ever stop breaking. And I remember, like, I'd get so angry at, at the Toyota. But isn't it interesting that, that as you get angry at things, it's so easy to get angry at people? Have you noticed that? Like, I'm working on this thing, and it's like someone comes and asks for something. It's like, you just, just stop it. I'm working on it. Don't you see what I'm doing? They're in my way. Maybe you don't see your kids as, kids as obstacles. Maybe you do see them as objects, objects for your reputation. And this is why you get so angry that when they act up at the grocery store, when they throw a fit in front of your neighbors, you aren't angry because they are offending God's command for children to honor your parents. You are angry that they're making you look bad in front of other people. And that your reputation might be hurt. Maybe you see your coworkers as objects for your success or obstacles for your success. Teenagers, maybe you see your parents as obstacles, that they are just totally in the way. If they would just let me do what I want to do, then my life would be great. Because I know, what do they know? Just get out of my way. College students, maybe this is your roommate, just in the way. They will not pick anything up. I just wish that they were out of the way. Why is anger of the heart put on par with murder of the hands? It's because when we see people as objects to consume, we will inevitably get angry when they don't meet our expectations, which will then turn them into an obstacle to remove that they're good for nothing, they aren't doing what they're supposed to, they're just in the way, and it would be better if they weren't there. Is that not just a few degrees away from what you need to have in your heart to actually murder someone? That it would, it would be better if you weren't here. When you get angry this week, ask yourself this question, why am I angry? Why am I angry? Could it be that I'm seeing this person as an object to consume or as an obstacle to remove? Or is it because I'm jealous for God's will and God's glory? If you're anything like me, it's less, it's less often because of my concern for God's glory. It is more often a concern for my comfort. You see, murder isn't just a matter of the hands, but it's a matter of the heart. And so the big question here is, so what do we do? As we are angry with other people, what do we do? Look at verse 23. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer 
your gift. You see, what Jesus, Jesus' main point here is not to give like precise instructions for corporate worship practices, but what he's saying, what he's highlighting here is the necessity of reconciliation. That if you're sitting here in this room right now and you have something, and you, you have something against someone else or you know that someone else has something against you, that it is not inconsequential that you are not reconciled, that there is a necessity for reconciliation. That relational reconciliation is more important than religious ritual. That if you have to choose, this is what Jesus is saying. Do you realize how important the temple worship practices were? They were, they were supreme because they were so connected to your relationship with God. And what Jesus is saying is that if there is something between you and a brother or sister, don't come to church. It would be better for you to not come to church and then to go and reconcile with that person because you cannot disconnect your relationship with the Father from your relationship with one another. The necessity of reconciliation. Now, does this mean that everyone has to be happy with you? in order for you to be able to worship? Certainly not, because there, and you know this, there are, there are certainly times when no matter how hard you try, no matter how often you go, no matter how many conversations you have, there will be some people that just don't like you, that just stay angry with you. But in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, here's what he says. He says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, you can't control other people. You can't control whether or not they are angry with you or whether they have a problem with you. But what you can control is have you been the one to initiate at least attempting to be reconciled? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Are you angry in your heart towards someone this morning? Reconciliation is necessary, but it isn't just necessary. There's also an urgency to reconciliation. Look at verse 25. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Can you imagine this picture? Two people walking on their way to court. You know that if we don't reconcile this, by the time that we get there, bad things will happen. There's an urgency to this reconciliation. What's interesting here is that what we see in Matthew chapter 18 is that if you have something against someone, then it's your job to go to them. But then what we also have here in Matthew chapter five is that if you know that someone else has something against you, it's your job to go to them. In other words, it doesn't matter who started it. For kingdom people, it's your job to do what you can to end it. It doesn't matter who started it. Don't wait for someone else to make the first move for reconciliation. Don't push it off. Don't let it fester. Don't push it back. Because just like mold in a basement, bitterness and destruction will grow if given enough time in the dark. Pursue reconciliation. Is there brokenness that you have with someone that you've been sitting on for far too long? 
that you have brokenness with someone else or that you know that someone else has brokenness with you, whether it's a problem you have with them or that they have with you, as far as it depends on you, have you tried to reconcile with that person? Now, you might be sitting here and you might be saying, Jake, that sounds nice, but you have no idea what they've done. You can't even imagine the hurt that they've caused. And you're right. You're probably right. I don't know what they've done, but here's what I do know. Is that I know that if you claim to be a Christian, then the reconciliation that you have received is more costly than the reconciliation that you may need to pursue. That if you claim to be a person of the kingdom of God, that God proved his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if you are a Christian, you have been pursued with a reconciling love, that you were a dead enemy of God. You couldn't care less about your relationship with him. And yet God in his great mercy pursued you, paid the price to be with you, to redeem you, to reconcile you. You say, I can't reconcile with them. You don't know what they've done. You're right. I don't know how they've sinned against you, but I do know that you have sinned against God and that God has pursued you that while you were still an enemy, Christ pursued you, that while you rightly had a certificate of death hanging over your head before God, that Christ came and took that certificate and nailed it to his cross, that you might be reconciled to the Father and brought into his household and be given a new family so that you could live with peace with one another. You see, you and I can be people of reconciliation because we are a people who have been reconciled by the blood of Christ. Now, some of you this morning, you don't claim to be a Christian. You know, I'm just here to get my neighbor off my back, to get my friend off my back. I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of checking these things out. Some of you have yet to be reconciled to God this morning. You have yet to receive God's forgiveness and reconciliation through faith in Christ. If that's you this morning, friends, if there is such an urgency in the scriptures to be reconciled with other people, surely there is a greater urgency to be reconciled with God himself. God is the most obvious example of someone that you have sinned against. Trust in Christ this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ this morning, that he died on the cross for your sin, that he rose again on the third day to reconcile you with a holy God and then submit to him as your Lord and King this morning. Christian, is there anyone you need to reconcile with? Kingdom people, people whose righteousness is beyond just a surface level, skin deep. Kingdom people pursue reconciliation because we remember the reconciling grace of Christ that pursued us. Be reconciled this morning. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you that you did not wait for us to make the first move we never could have, dead in our sin. That while we were enemies of you, that you pursued us in Jesus Christ. You pursued reconciliation with your fallen humanity. Oh God, would we be a people who display the same kind of grace, the same kind of love, the same kind of self-sacrifice as we pursue those who we have offended or who have offended us. Would we be known as a people of grace, as a people of peace, that a watching world would look at us and go, how in the world can they love one another when they offend each other so often? Would we be jealous for your glory, jealous for your will, as we pursue reconciliation with one another? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.